what a delight it is to be here with you and to see you. Every, every time we get to be together is a joy for me. Because there's a lot in my week that's not as exciting and not as spiritual and not as uplifting. I don't know if that's your experience of living, but it sure is mine. And so the opportunity to be together with people who are on the same bold, daring mission to try to pursue the light, to look for the the good in ourselves and in others who are trying to lift up others who believe that there is more light in all of us than we have even seen yet. It's a delight to now sit together in a room and celebrate that opportunity and possibility that lies in front of us together. So thanks for being here this morning, but thanks for being you every day and, uh, and knowing it allows me to know that even in the moments where I feel alone, that I'm never alone and, and you're not either. There are many, many people around this community and around the world that have the same fears, the same insecurities, but the same hope that you do. And so we're celebrating that this morning. Uh, When Trisha and I first got married back in the 90s, we've been married for, is it 21 years? We've been married for 21 years. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. She did it. Um. When we were first married, we had this Honda Civic, and it was old when we got it. Now, these days, Honda Civics actually look pretty cool, but back then, they didn't, man. They were the ugliest cars you could drive. This was a stick shift, and it was this tiny little car. Everything you could make fun of about this car, you could. It was only functional. Like, it was a go-kart they turned into a car. And uh, we lived in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and one day a hailstorm came through, a giant hailstorm. And it was one of those hailstorms where they put everybody in the basements of all the buildings at our university where we were, and everybody was so scared. And when we all walked out, all of our cars were decimated by hail damage. Like, it was ridiculous. These were giant pieces of hail. When we finally, when I finally found, got to my car because there was like storms and trees down and all this stuff, it took a little while to get to it. So here is this car that was very ugly to begin with. And it looked like someone in a very calculated way had taken one of those ball peen hammers and just walked around and about every three inches just gone ping, 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 like all over it. And so it was this atrocious looking thing. It's like... It's like it was a, it had had a very bad case of acne 10 years ago, and this is the scarring that was left on it. And it took an ugly car and made it even more ugly. When the insurance company finally got around to us, there were so many cars that had been damaged in this storm that they said, look, here's the blue book value of this car, and it wasn't very much. We're going to write you a check for that value. But there are so many hail-damaged cars, and yours is a pitiful sight to behold. It's worth practically nothing. We're just going to let you keep it. So we're going to write you a check for the value, but we're going to let you keep the car. Now, Trish and I at that time had no money. And the car worked fine internally. It was ugly on the outside, but it worked fine internally. So we were like, hey, free car. So we just said, we'll bank this money and drive the car. Now, theoretically, that sounded like a good idea until we moved to Florida. And when you were in Bowling Green and people saw your car, everyone knew what had happened. 
they all were like, oh, it's hailstorm, right? Yeah, spring, yeah, that was bad. Fine, we were all in it together. But when I moved to Tampa with this car, everybody was like, what is the matter with your car? What happened? This is terrible. And I have to admit that it was kind of embarrassing to have to tell people the story. You would literally get out of your car at Publix, and there'd be somebody walking past your car like, what's the matter with that guy? What happened to his car? Did it catch a disease? What's wrong with it? Now, one of the great things financially that came out of it is some of that money that we got from that car we used to start our first business, which was great. And it was a wedding video business. Now, we didn't have the money for a studio, so I had to go to other people's homes. You're getting this, right? I had to go to other people's homes. I would have appointments like at 5, 7, and 9 every night of the week to try to sell them an $800 wedding video that I was going to film for them. That's a story and an adventure unto itself, the homes I went into, the people I met. But I had this car that was an embarrassment. If I knew that if you saw my car, you would not hire me to come film your wedding. This day of great luxury and elegance in your life, you did not want my car in the parking lot of your hotel when you, on your wedding day. So I would park it around the corner, like down the block, and I would walk to their house for a few minutes. Now, the times that were a little uncomfortable is when they would try to walk me out after the appointment and be like, oh, I'll walk you to your car. And in those moments, I had to come up with some story for why my car was not parked in their driveway. Usually, I would just, I'm embarrassed to tell you, flat out lie. I would walk out the door and I would, they would say, oh, I'll walk you to your car. And I'd say, oh, you know what? I got to make a phone call real quick. I, I, no, it's fine. I'm just going to make a phone call. And they're like, okay, fine. And it was no big deal. And then I would open up the phone. I would call Trisha. I would say, Trisha, it's me. Bye. And hang up. So I hadn't completely lied in that moment. Now, one time I was on an assignment with someone else where we were doing some filming. And I had parked my car at a Burger King. And we had driven together. And he said, he was going to drop me off. And he said, I'll, I'll just drop you off at the Burger King. Where's your car? I'll drop you off right at your car. And I lied again and said, oh, I didn't drive. My wife dropped me off. She's going to pick me back up. He dropped me off of the Burger King. He drove off. And as soon as I could see that his car was gone, I got in my car and left. That's where I was with this car until the day we sold it. Now, you may be asking yourself, when is he going to show us a photo of this car so that we can get the image of it, right? It should go right on the screen here. But there's not one, because I would not take one, because I was so embarrassed of this car that I was not willing to take a picture with it in front of it. I wish in this moment I had a picture of it. I would, with great boldness, show you this picture of me with my long sideburns standing beside this car, owning the ugliness of this car and where I had started and where I came from but I don't have one. I don't have one of that part of my life. Because even though legally, on paper, I owned that car, in public, I would not own that car. I wouldn't even drive it to church. That's where I was in my feeling 
about that car. And even though it was part of my life, I didn't want to own it because it was a mess. It was a mess. It was a disaster. Literally, it was the result of a disaster, of a natural disaster. And I did not want anyone to know that this was the car I was driving. I thought it reflected on me, on my success, my achievement, and I didn't want anybody to know. Now, as I tell that story, you may not have a story that dramatic in your world, but you can kind of feel me a little bit, right? Like you can say, you know, if I was in your situation, I might have done something similar. Now, I'm a person of much higher integrity than you. I wouldn't have lied. But I might have done those other things that you talked about. And this is not new in our world, and it's not unique to me, that we have trouble in our lives owning and dealing with our messes. The things that are not so pretty, the things that are ugly. And it manifests in so many ways in our lives. When you're a little kid and your mom says, hey, clean your room. And you're like, okay, there's two ways I could do this. I could either do the 30-minute version where I actually clean the room. Or I could just take all this junk and throw it in the closet and under the bed and carefully manipulate the closet door closed. And when she looks, she will think it's clean, but it's really just a disaster. It's no better than it was before. And so we all do it. In every part of our lives, we hide our disasters, and our Instagram world makes it no easier. We take 50 photos until we get just the right one, with just the right lighting, with just the right look on our face, with just the right squint of our eyes. And then even when we don't like it, we have an app that'll take care of the things we didn't like in the background of that image that we can remove in three seconds with two clicks. We're then lifted up and exalted for being so good at doing that. But the interesting thing about Jesus is that if I had met Jesus, the very first thing at that moment in my life he probably would have said is, tell me about that car. Like that probably would have been the first thing out of his mouth. He probably would not have said, let's talk about all your achievements and all the great things you've done and how good you speak about this or that or how great your wedding films were, how nice of a husband you are. He'd probably start with the car. The very thing that I had been hiding. And he'd say, why are you hiding that car? What's driving that? What are you afraid of? And he'd walk into your room and the first thing he'd say is, there's a mess in that closet. Let's talk about that. Let's work on that mess. Why do I think he would do that to me and my life and to you? Because pretty much there's four books of the Bible where he just does that over and over again. Where he is constantly walking into situations and he is running to the mess. He's just running to it. There is no story in the Gospels that tell the story of Jesus where it said, and Jesus then sought out the most perfect, wise person he could find so that they could spend the day together. There is no verse in the Bible that says that. He was not looking, he was not on a quest for the next most perfect person besides himself that he could hang out with. What was he doing? 
he was constantly looking for the messes. He was looking for the messes. He was looking for people that were hurting, people that were in trouble, people that felt lost, people that felt abandoned. And there was very little small talk. It was just straight to it. Straight to it. Straight to the ugliest thing, the thing that they're embarrassed of, the thing that they had been denying, the car that they had been parking around the block for so many years, the mess they had been hiding in the closet. Let's get into that right now. And all of the stories he told were about messy people. People that had been beaten and left on the side of the road. Dumb young men who had taken half of their father's fortune and run off with it and squandered it. People who had lost things. People who were lost that needed shepherds to come after them, to find them. People who had wasted their talents. People who had lost coins. Men who thought that they were so great and wonderful that they would build bigger barns only to die that very night. It was over and over and over again stories about the messiest of people in the messiest of moments. And he would go right into it. Jesus ran towards the mess. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? I think it's because he knew that within all of those messes were the roads to salvation, were the paths to redemption, were the paths to real change. We would love to believe that it is within our great skills and talents that we will find our path to greatness, that we will learn how to overcome the things that are going wrong in our personal lives and our financial lives and our health and our families by focusing on our strengths, the things we do really well. That's hardly ever the case. Most often, the key to the next step of our lives is within the stuff we don't want to look at. We don't want to look at. I recently saw a quote that said, the problem with higher consciousness and the pursuit of higher consciousness is that you have to become conscious of all the things you don't want to be conscious of. Problem with higher consciousness is that you have to become conscious of all the things you don't want to become conscious of. I know that's true for me. There's all this stuff I don't want to become conscious of. If you've been in this group for very long and you've talked to someone about a real challenge in your life, it probably hasn't taken too long for someone to say, maybe you need a therapist or a coach. You may have often heard people in this group talk about Enneagram personality types. Well, here's my type, and because that's my type, here's my fears and my weaknesses and, and all of that. Well, why do we talk about that? Why do I talk about that? That's not in the Bible. There's no, there's no talk of personality types in the Bible. There's no get thee to a therapist in the Bible. That's not there. Why do we talk about that stuff? Why is that in our world? All that is, those kinds of things, are tools. They're just tools to self-awareness, to knowing ourselves and understanding ourselves. Because so very often, there's things going on underneath the hood of our lives that we are not even aware are going on. There's messes that we're hiding under the bed and in the closet that even we have forgotten we threw in there because we didn't even know we were doing it when we did it. And then years later, we find that we're hurting and suffering and we don't know why. 
We don't know why. Why am I hurting so bad? Well, it's because of all that junk you shoved in your closet years ago, and now it stinks. There were rotten eggs in there, and you forgot, and they're spoiled and rotten, and now your whole house smells terrible, and you don't know why. You don't know why. Because self-awareness is hard. It's painful. It hurts. But it is the reality of what is needed to move us to the next stage of our life and our growth. Now, we got lots of stories about Jesus talking to other people about that stuff. But Jesus also did it himself. He also modeled what that kind of self-aware messiness looks like. And he did it when he died. Now, you know the story about Jesus dying, and you understand probably, or at least have heard the theology of Jesus died for your sins. He died for the redemption of your sins. But the question that still remains, okay, I get it that Jesus needed to die on the cross and then be raised as a symbol of the new life that we can all have and the new creatures that we can all become. But why all the suffering? Why all the suffering? Why did before he died he have to go through 24 hours of torture, beatings, crowns of thorns, blood on his back, terrible suffering to do all these things? And your answer to that might be, well, because it was prophesied that that would happen. Well, God could have had those dudes prophesy about something very different. He could have prophesied in a different way. But he didn't. But they didn't. They said he was going to be a man of sorrow and suffering. Why? Why did he have to go through that? Jesus, on some level, asked that same question. When he was sitting in the garden, praying, the night before he was about to be taken, knowing because he was God what was to come and what it was probably going to look like, he said specifically to God, is there not another way? Could we do this differently? Isn't there a shortcut here? Isn't there a way for us to achieve this that doesn't require me to hurt so bad? That doesn't require me to suffer? Isn't there a path? We're God, right? There's a magic trick here, isn't there? And we're all asking ourselves that question. We're hurting so bad. And we say to ourselves, isn't there a prescription for that? Isn't there a pill I can take that will make me feel differently and solve all of this? Isn't there someone I can blame for this that is not me? Can I blame my wife for this? Can't I blame my knucklehead teenager for this? Can't I blame my coworker? Can't I blame the economy or the president? Can't I blame the weather? There's a million things I can blame, right? This can't be me. There's got to be a shortcut here. But Jesus very quickly acknowledges and says, even as he asks the question, he doesn't even finish the sentence before he then acknowledges but if there's no other way, your will be done, God. Your will be done. 
And then, for a day and a half, he experiences betrayal. He experiences loss, sufferings and beatings. And the physical, mental, and emotional torment of that must have been unbelievable. Why? Why did it have to be that way? I'm sure there is someone smarter than me that could give us a very clear theological reason why. But I have a feeling that the reason it happened that way was to model for all of us that there is no path to redemption. There is no path to salvation. There is no path to overcoming that does not require personal suffering that does not require you to go into the middle of all the uncomfortable, painful messes in your life that you do not want to face, but to go right through the middle of them. Not to figure a way around them or underneath them or over them or beside them, but that you have to go right through the middle of them. Right through the middle of them. Without excuse, without blame, without victim mentality, but to say, this is my life. Even it's not fair. This isn't fair for me to suffer like this. I don't deserve this. This is wrong. Jesus could have said all those words. He should have said all those words. But he didn't. He didn't. He didn't. Now, I am tempted to stay in that garden. To sit there, prayerfully bowed, and to say, God, do something. God, fix this. God, change this. God, bring about a different circumstance. And that is a very valid prayer. And it's an important part of our life. And God does move within that. He is powerful to create that sort of change in our lives. But very often, our job is still, after we've said the prayer, to stand up, walk out of the garden, take up our cross, follow Jesus. When it's hard. When it's hard. To have the honest conversation you don't want to have. To say the words you need to say that you're afraid of. To walk into that circumstance and do what you know is right when you have everything to lose. To be willing to ask forgiveness and mercy and grace to the person that you have wronged. That you know they've wronged you too and they need to apologize first. But you have to walk into the mess first and own your part. And own your part. To sit in the middle of a conversation where every bit of you wants to speak, but you know you have to shut up you know this is the moment not to speak. That love calls you to be silent. And to be silent when you have every right to defend yourself, lash out. To do the uncomfortable thing. And to also be willing to say, I was wrong. I've created a mess. And it's affected this person, that person. And yeah, they contributed they made my life hard, but now I have to own it. I have to do the hard thing that is necessary to be free. For me to be free. For me to be free.
Jesus didn't just run to the suffering in other people's lives. He acknowledged that for him to bring something better to the world, he, son of God, would have to suffer himself. Would have to suffer himself. If you are suffering, hurting today, if you are sitting in your own personal garden of Gethsemane, begging God to take it away, to take it away, it is okay that you are in that place and you are asking God to do that. That is good. But it's also important for you to be willing to do what Jesus did, to be willing to walk into the suffering, knowing that you are not alone, that you are not alone, that in that moment in history, that moment that changed our lives forever, that this church is founded on, that our spiritual hope is founded on. That when you suffer, you do not suffer alone. Jesus says with you, I know. I was there. I hurt so bad as you are hurting now. This is what it takes for your redemption to occur. This is what it takes for you to find the peace and the joy and the long-suffering and the, all the fruits of the Spirit that you're so longing for in your life. It's on the other side of this mess that you do not want to deal with, that you do not want to face, that you do not want to walk through. I did it. He says to you, he whispers to each one of us, know what you're feeling. You are not alone. I walk with you through that hurt. And we together as a church walk with you through that hurt. We want you to feel free and safe, to be honest, real, and open. We do not want you to park your car around the corner because you are embarrassed to walk in to this room, to this spaces, these spaces, to these house churches, and feel like you have to put on what a friend of mine calls foyer face, which is when you stand in the foyer of a church building and pretend like everything is fine when you know it's not really fine because you are afraid that people will judge you as a lesser Christian because you do not have it all together in your life. Here's the truth. None of us have it all together. We are all afraid. We are all insecure. We are all hurting. We all feel lost about something. About something. And what as leaders and as owners we long to do here is to create a space where you can walk in with your messy closet and own it. Own it. Own it. And just say, I am having this problem with my children I have to say it out loud so I am not alone. Without fear that you will be judged or thought less of because of that, that we walk with you through that. And so does Jesus. So does God. The maker of the universe, the almighty power that makes everything move and function, he stands with you. Not just in your moments of triumph, but in all the ugly things you have been trying to hide. And we stand with you too.
And we want to know. We want to know. Like Jesus, we are committed to diving into the messes of your life and not sorting them out because we don't have all the answers to fix you. But to say to you, it is okay. You are loved. You are loved. And you are accepted just as you are. That old hymn, just as I am, is just as applicable today as it was so many years ago when it was famous. Just as you are, just come. Just come. Not with your answers and your solutions. You don't have to wait till you've got it all figured out to tell us about the struggle that you went through a year ago. Tell us now. With all of the mess and all of the brokenness and all of the ugliness, not with a fear that you will have to explain and justify yourself and why it happened, but know that it's okay and that you are loved just because you are you. And this is a safe place for you. And we long to walk with you in those spaces. So the band can come back up and we'll, we'll pray together about this. And I hope that as we pray, my longing will be that that thing that maybe has been shoved in the closet for you for so many years and so long, that car that's so ugly and beat up that you're embarrassed and ashamed of that you've been parking down the road because you didn't want anybody to see it, that this will be a moment and a time when you will say, you know, today I'm going to face it. I'm going to face it. And before you even leave this warehouse, that you'll walk up to someone and say, i got to tell you this i got to own this. I need help with this. And if not today, then soon. Then soon. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give us the strength and the courage to have faith. To have faith that even at our ugliest, even at our most difficult moments, that we can still be real. That we can still be honest. And that that sort of vulnerability is always the right thing. Give us the courage to be open. And give us the trust to walk forward with this group. To look to this group and to these people here. And to get support. That's what church is for. Uh, That's why you created this. So that we could walk together in all of these things. Help us to use this beautiful thing you have created for the purpose you created it for. Thank you for the stories of suffering and overcoming of messes and salvation, of ugliness and redemption that are all through the Bible and that are the manifestation of really what the story of Jesus was all about. And it's in his name that we pray to you today.